I met with a guy this week, and he came in and said, I don't, how do you get stuff out of the Bible? I don't get it. And uh, that honestly bothered me a little bit. I talked with him, but I thought, am, am I not helping? So I want to give you a simple approach to reading the Bible. Super easy. This is how I want, I want you to consider incorporating this into your time reading the Bible, because you don't need to hear from me to hear from the Lord. If that's some of the way, what you're thinking, then we're, we're missing everything in here together. You don't need to hear from anybody else. God will speak to you directly through his word. And this is a very simple process that you can use. Step one, what does it say? That's observation. That's reading comprehension. You've been doing that since the third grade. Just tell me the story. What happened? Who, what, when, where, how. You don't even have to answer why. Just tell me what happened. Second, interpretation. What does it mean? This is where everybody, most people lose it. The Bible was written thousands of years ago in a different language in a different culture. And so for us, there's such a big gap between the setting where it was written and the setting in which we live, it's difficult to know what exactly does it mean. And so we get frustrated and we just quit reading. Or we just read the few passages that we actually understand. But to think God can speak to me through any book in the Bible, we say, no, I don't understand them. I don't know what's going on. Mark, if you'll show that next slide. This is a great thing that you can do. These are expensive. They're 40 to $70. Christmas is coming up, ask for one. It's a study Bible. You can download one. They're electronic, or you can buy one. Those big letters, NLT, ESV, NIV, those are translations. I don't care what you get. You find something that you understand. If you're a King James person, you can do that. That doesn't matter. It's the underneath. Study, study, study. I want you to strongly consider getting one of those. 90% of the questions you have when you read the Bible will be answered in a study Bible. The guys who put them together are really smart. They know, the, they know the kind of things that stump people. They know what people want to know. And you'll, you'll read, and then you'll look down. There'll be a little footnote, and it will explain what you just read. They're not going to give you 17 pages of information that you don't care about. They're going to give you 17 words. It's concise, it's direct, and it's very helpful. Again, 90% of the questions that you stumble on when you're reading, I don't know what this means, it will explain. Super simple way. Very important. What does it say? Observation. What does it mean? Interpretation. You're not a dummy if you can't interpret it. You're just not a Hebrew who lived 2,500 years ago. And you're never going to be that. And so the only way to get at that what does it mean, you don't have to go to seminary, you don't have to buy a whole set of books. You just need to do a little bit. It's 30 seconds. Glance down at the bottom of the page. Last question, which is really important, what does it mean to me? That's application for most of us. The issue is that we don't, it's not that we don't know enough, it's that we don't do enough with what we know. And so there's this question that says, God, what are you trying to reveal to me about yourself through the Bible? What are you trying to reveal to me about me through the Bible? What are you trying to reveal to me about the world or how you work through the Bible? The Bible is not a collection of, it's, it's not just a gathering of information. It's not a collection of religious facts. It's a revelation. This is God saying, here's who I am, here's who you are, here's how I relate to you, Here's what I'm doing, and here's how you get on board with it. If you're constantly reading the Bible, and there's no incorporation of the truth of that into your life, honestly, then you're doing it wrong. You're missing the key piece. doesn't matter if you can pass a Bible competency exam. There's not one of those. What matters is, are you meeting God in the Word? Is He revealing more of Himself to you, and are you incorporating that revelation into your life? So as we go through Ruth... You can just have those things in the back of your mind, and I'll try to make explicit what that looks like for me. Just as a, as a for example, what does it say, what does it mean, and what does it mean to me? So, brief recap, 
Ruth is set during the time of Judges. Judges is awful. It's one of the worst periods in Israel's history. Summarized very nicely at the end of Judges, everyone did as he or she saw fit. Moral chaos, spiritual anarchy, dark, dark days. And then we have Ruth, this hero, kind of set in the middle of that. She stands in stark contrast to everything that goes on in the book of Judges. But Ruth is not about Ruth. Ruth is about Naomi. She's the main character, even though she's not the main actor. So we have Naomi, we have her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and we have a male relative named Boaz. Those are the three main folks involved in the story, but everything revolves around Naomi. She begins full. Her name means pleasant. She's married. She has two sons. We said during this time, a woman's welfare was tied to the men in her life, and so Naomi looks great because she's married and she has two sons. Very quickly, she becomes empty. In her words, God has emptied her. Her husband dies, both of her sons die, and neither of her sons have any children. So now she's left. She's gone from having three men in her life to having none and having no prospects for any more. So she's destitute, she's desperate, she's hopeless. In the face of that, she, te- she says to her two daughters-in-law, I'm going to move, I'm going to go back home, y'all go back to your parents. And Ruth, in that fierce statement of commitment, says, I'm not going anywhere. Don't you ask me to leave. I'm sticking with you. So they move back to Naomi's home. Naomi says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. My name is now Mara, which means bitter. And that's how chapter 1 closes. And in chapter 2, we saw Ruth saying, somebody's got to take care of you. I'm going to do this. Let me go gather some food. And she winds up in Boaz's field. And she gleans in his field to provide for her family. And chapter 2 closes with this note of hopefulness because Naomi says he's related to us. He's a kinsman redeemer. We'll talk about that soon. He's someone who is related to us. So we're going to pick up in chapter 3 with that idea. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor, Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he said. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Your Bible might say kinsman redeemer. It's the same thing. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of of my town know that you're a woman of noble character, Although it's true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured it into six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her 
and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for that man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So, kind of using our little format, what does it say? It says, Naomi sent her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to this threshing floor in order to see if Boaz would marry her. That's, that's what it says. There's more detail, but that's generally what it says. What does it mean? This is where we get kind of tripped up. Because for us, if we were thinking about proposing to somebody, not necessarily the way we would go about it. But that's what's going on here. Women, welfare tied to men. Ruth is a widow, but she's still young. She's still marriable. Naomi says, I want to take care of you, send her to the threshing floor, get all prettied up, and go. Now, the threshing floor, what is that? It's this place, it's just an open space. It would have been used at night because the wind blew more at night. So they were winnowing. So they'd already harvested wheat and barley, and then they would take these like pitchforks, and they'd throw the wheat and the barley up in the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the heavier wheat and barley would fall back down. So that's how they collected that. Would have been a, Tons of people would have been there. People would have been buying and selling. Uh, this is on the heels of a famine that's lasted for ten years. And so they're, they're celebrating. You would always celebrate a harvest, maybe even more so because there's been this famine for ten years. There's alcohol. You've got alcohol. You've got men. And you've got their women back in town. So you have prostitutes out there as well. And that's one of the reasons Boaz is so protective of Ruth. I don't want them to know you are here because it's going to ruin your character. They're going to think that you did something that you did not do. And so Ruth goes. There's no, remember, this is pre, there are no lights, so it's dark. When Boaz finally falls asleep, Ruth is probably out there in the shadows somewhere. She sees him fall asleep, and then she kind of scampers up to him, pulls a sheet back over his feet, like he's laying down with a blanket, and then she lays down on his feet. Some people see a euphemism for sex there. I don't. I think it's just a literal statement. She pulled the covers back over his feet, and then she laid down. And at some point in the night, Ruth doesn't go to sleep. He wakes up. I don't know if he wakes up because his feet are cold. I don't know if Ruth tickled his feet. I don't know what happened, but he wakes up, and he's startled because there's a woman laying at his feet. Who are you? I'm Ruth. What do you want? He says, spread the corner of your garment over me. What does that mean? It means marry me. It's what she's asking. I want to live under your protection. You may not remember last week when Boaz is talking about God. He says, that's what God did for y'all. You're under the wing, under the cover of God. And so what Ruth does is she repeats that back to him. I want to be under your cover. I want you to protect me. Marry me. And what Boaz is blown away, he's more like Naomi's age than Ruth's age. It's like you marrying somebody who's your parents' age. And he's saying, "I, I can't believe you would do this. This kindness, remember last week we said that word kindness doesn't mean nice. It's way stronger than that. It's covenant love. This deep, deep commitment to Naomi. That's who he's talking about. What you're doing now, this is even a bigger deal than when you chose to leave your entire family and move to Bethlehem with her. That was huge as a, as a, as a woman who's single to say, I'm going to go... I'm going to leave everything behind, the safety and protection of my family, and I'm going to move with this childless widow who has nothing to offer me. That's a big deal. It's a bigger deal to say I'm going to marry somebody who's my dad's age for my mother-in-law. That's who she's doing this for. She could always leave Bethlehem. Once she gets married, she can't leave. Women can't get a divorce. And so what she's doing there is she's locking in 
with Boaz and saying, I'm, I'm going to marry you because it's the best thing for my mother-in-law. You can take care of her. And he gets it. You could have married anybody. You, should have, you could have married a younger guy. But you chose me. And so if I'm second in line, there's this set of responsibilities. It's what kinsmen redeemers do. They make things right. So there are different circumstances where a male member of your family would step in to make things right. If you lost your land, so I've got a brother. If he's a terrible farmer and he loses his land, I have the responsibility and the opportunity to step in and buy that land back for him. I don't get it. It goes back to him. Because God gave people land and he wants it to stay in their family. If he looks like he's going to lose his land, then I step in and I buy it before he's got to sell it outside of our family. That's what's happening with Naomi. She might not have lost her land, but she's, she's struggling to keep up. It's been, it hadn't been farmed for ten years. She can't keep up with it. And so Boaz says, well, somebody's got to buy this land to keep it in Elimelech's family. If my brother's such a terrible farmer, he doesn't just lose his land. He's got to sell himself into slavery just to pay his debt. Then I have a responsibility to buy him back and set him free. The next one's a little difficult for us. Eye for an eye type thing. If somebody kills him, then it's my responsibility to take that person out. And if you read through Numbers, it talks about the avenger. It's the same word as kinsman redeemer. It seems barbaric to us, but it was actually a way for God of of limiting revenge. Somebody takes out my brother, I don't take out their family. I hold the one person responsible who did that to him. It keeps things on a much more individual level. Or what we'll see in Ruth, if Micah dies and there's no children there, then it's my responsibility to marry his widow and produce a son who will carry on his name, not mine. So those are all responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. They make things right. And what Boaz is saying is, I'm willing to make things right, but I'm second. There's someone closer than me, and we'll see if that guy wants to make things right. So that's what's going on. Chapter 4, meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to his guardian redeemer, Naomi has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi... You also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I can't redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Cheaper than a lawyer. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, so that's her dead husband, Kilian and Malon. Those are her two sons who've also died. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. 
that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathoth and be famous in Bethlehem. Through, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may you be like that of May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then you have the family line of Perez there, ending with David. So, what's it say? It says that Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a son. His name is Obed, and Obed becomes Naomi's son. She adopts her grandson as her own, and he's the one who's going to take care of her. He's the one, Obed, who's going to make everything right because now Naomi's got some, she has a male in her family. And so her property's not going to wind up with somebody else. The name of her husband is not going to die out. There's someone to continue her family line. And then we see the bigger picture is this son, Obed, actually becomes the grandfather of David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. So that's what's happening. What does it mean? Again, you've got city gates where all legal transactions took place. You have elders as witnesses, the the guy who's first in line, Boaz says, do you want this? And he says, absolutely, I'll, I'll buy the land. When you buy the land, you get Ruth. And, you, and he understands that I have a responsibility to produce a son with Ruth. Well, if I produce a son with Ruth, and I don't have any sons of my own, then that son gets my stuff. I'm not willing to risk that, so no, I pass. And Boaz says, okay, then I'll do it. And he steps in and marries Ruth. And for us, what we see is Naomi is now full again. She began the story full, and she ends full. She's got someone to take care of her. She's got someone to look out for her well-being. So what does all of this mean for us? You may pull out other things. For me, when I look at the story as a whole, it's this idea of how do we respond to famine? How do we respond to emptiness? How do we respond to lack? It may not be an issue where we've lost someone like Naomi did, where there's a, a literal death, but for many of us, For all of us at some point, and for many of us even this morning, there's a place where you'd say, I'm lacking something. I'm lacking direction. I'm lacking purpose. I'm lacking provision. I'm lacking relationship. There's something that you're missing. There's a lack. There's a famine there. I'm lacking wholeness in my life. I'm lacking healing in my body. Whatever those things are, how do we respond? And we can look at this story, Ruth, and we can pull a few things out. First thing you see is the importance of recognizing God's activity uh, in this situation. Sometimes his activity is subtle, sometimes it's more overt. But for us, if you're in a spot where you would say, I'm like Naomi, there's some lack in my life, then the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is say, where is God at work? It's interesting. Sometimes it's subtle. In chapter 2, the Bible says, as it turns out, that's the quote, Ruth winds up in Boaz's field. As it turns out, just the first field she happens to go into is the field of this guy who happens to be related to Naomi and happens to be an incredible man of character. We can look at that and say, that's not a coincidence. God's at work. 
Ruth doesn't know that at the time. She doesn't know his name, and once she knows his name, she doesn't know who he is. But we can see God at work. He doesn't take credit for that, but we can see his fingerprints there. See the same thing in chapter 4. Boaz is at the city gate, and it says he sat down as the guy he needed to talk to just happened to walk by. Again, we know it's not just happened to walk by. God's at work behind the scenes moving pieces around. We talked a few weeks ago about the idea of providence, that God has a plan and he's working towards it. This you see, you see some of that here. My encouragement to you if you're experiencing a time of lack, of famine, is to say, where's God at work? Don't say coincidence. Don't say things broke my way. Don't say it just so happened. Say, this is God at work. If nothing else, it will encourage your heart to begin to look with eyes of faith at your circumstances. I don't think it's wishful thinking. I think it's trust in a God who is constantly working, who never rests, who never sleeps, who's always working towards, towards accomplishing his purposes. Sometimes his action is much more overt. Boaz, in Ruth, really plays the role of God. He, we talked about that last week. What he offers to Ruth, protection, relationship, provision. Those are the same things that God offers to us. You see his posture towards Ruth is very protective, very fatherly. We talked last week about really seeing him as a shepherd in a lot of ways. The role he plays, kinsman redeemer. What he does for Ruth and Naomi temporarily or provisionally, Jesus does for us finally and ultimately. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the one that makes everything right. Boaz can make things right on an earthly human level. Jesus can make things right in every way. And so we see Boaz really functioning that way. And so you want to look, what are, where, where's God working overtly? Let's ask him to do those things and believe him to do those things. You heard a story from Alan and Marcy today. They're sitting there holding the overt action of God in their life. And so he will do those things. And we want to have eyes to see both. God at work subtly behind the scenes and God at work really taking credit in a very open way. And then our response, and we can see where God is working. And you may be saying... The reason there's a lack in my life is because he's not working. I want to encourage you, look more closely. He's always at work. God, what are you doing in these circumstances? How are you? I can't see it. Things are not going the way I think they should go. You've got to give me eyes to see. And once you see that, then your response is, what does it look like for you to live a life of trust into that direction? God, so this is what I'm seeing from you. And I'm going to respond in faith. Faith is trust. I'm going to respond by trusting you with these areas where I see you at work. And trust can take two major expressions. One is bold action. We see that from Ruth. She's a stud. Three incredibly risky moves that she makes. Leaving her whole family behind in Moab to move to Bethlehem with Naomi, who again is a childless widow with no prospects. Think about that. You move to a foreign country with somebody who's got nothing to offer you. That's what Ruth did. Saying, I'm going to go work. Ruth takes the initiative there. As a young woman in a field, she's putting herself in all kinds of danger. Boaz says to his guys, don't lay a hand on her. And the reason he has to say that is because this is the time of judges where everybody does as he sees fit. She's incredibly vulnerable. Huge risk that she takes on behalf of her mother-in-law. And then we see with Boaz, going to this threshing floor at night where her reputation, it's not just her reputation is at risk, Boaz can reject her. 
What? No. No, I'm not going to marry you. That's a huge risk that she takes. And the sacrifice of going through with it. All of those things we see in Ruth, this bold action. It's all motivated by love. They're all expressions of trust. It very well may be where you are today, your area of lack. Recognize, God, this is where I see you at work. Do you sense him saying, now it's time for you to take a step. I need you to do something. If you trust me, then fill in the blank. I can't fill in the blank for you. It's individual. You need to hear the Lord on that. Naomi, we see the other side of the coin. Trust for her is this patient waiting. She doesn't do a whole lot. She really fades to the background in the story. She complains, but outside of complaining, we don't see much from her. She sends Ruth to the threshing floor, but that's it. Not a lot of activity from Naomi. That may be where you are. God, I see you at work, and the thing that I feel like you're leading me to do as I pray is nothing, which is not easy for me. I want to do something. I want to make this happen. I want to cooperate. I want to engage. But I feel like what you're saying is don't. You just sit back and you watch me work. For some of you, that is the hardest thing in the world. To do nothing as an expression of trust. I'm not going to do anything because I'm trusting that God can work outside of my action. For some of us, that is not easy at all. Still an expression of faith. And so that's what you're looking at. If there's lack in your life this morning, recognize, God, where are you at work? And what does it look like for me to trust you in those areas? Is it bold action? Is it patient waiting? We're going to close with this. Psalm 8110 Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. That's what God says in Psalm 81.10. The question for me is, what does it look like to open wide your mouth? I don't think it means like, that's not what we're doing here. So what does that look like for us? These areas where we're lacking to open wide our mouths so that God can then fill them. For some of you, this is not easy. Proverbs talks about hope deferred being making the heart sick. And for some of you, this the area where you're lacking, is, it's been there for a while. Again, think about Naomi. It's, it's maybe up to 10 years, maybe 11 years that she's been experiencing this. Her husband dies and then her sons die. It's a pretty extended period of time for her. For some of you, that's where you are. It's been a long time. And you're tired of kind of bringing this thing before the Lord. Because he's not at work, and every time you just get your hopes up just to have him disappointed all over again. And so the temptation for all of us is to take our ball and go home. And just, or to, what we say is, well, I'm just going to, this is just my life. I'm just going to live with this. Now, if you've heard from the Lord, Paul, three times, God, take this thorn from my flesh. And God says no. So, like at that point, you quit asking because God said no. But if that's not where you are, if you don't feel like God has said, hey, this is an area where I'm not going to, do anything different, then I want to encourage you between now and Christmas, you've got five weeks. I want you to think about what does it look like for me to open my mouth so that God can fill it. And we're just going to trust and believe that he'll do something in your life between now and Christmas. Now, Naomi was filled again, but her husband did not come back from the dead. She's still a widow. God didn't reverse all of her circumstances. He didn't undo five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten years of heartache for her. What God did was provide her with someone to take care of her through her daughter-in-law. Bo said a couple of weeks ago, I thought it was pretty profound, there's a difference between expectation and expectancy. Expectation can lead to disappointment. God, this is the thing. 
I'm Naomi. I want you to take care of me, so you need to bring Mr. Right through the door. I need to be married again. That's not what happened. If that's how she saw being filled again, then she's going to be disappointed because that's not how the Lord worked in her life. Expectancy says, God, you're going to do something. I was full. You made me empty. You can fill me again. So I'm expecting you to do that. She says in chapter 2, God has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. There's still hope there. You're going to do something, but I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, and so my hands are open. I'm expecting you to put something in my mouth, but I don't know exactly what it's going to be. You're going to fill it, but I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. That's expectancy, and that's where we want to stand between now and Christmas. Let me give you some practical things that you can walk away with. Luke 11, it's also in Matthew 7, when Jesus is talking about prayer. He says, ask, seek, and knock. Ask in the... And you'll receive, seeking, you'll find, knock on the door will be open. The idea behind those verbs is continual. Ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. It's not a one-time deal. Asking, I think of Naomi. That's patiently waiting. Asking is making known to God what you need. Well, he already knows. He absolutely already knows. But he says, ask anyway. James 4, 2. The reason you don't have is because you don't ask. So ask. And then, that's what I'm doing, God. I need you in this area. I need direction. I need relationship. I need a baby. I need a job. I need peace. I need healing. Whatever it is that you need, ask him. It's just do that. And ask and keep on asking. Seeking, that's moving in the direction of Ruth. I'm not just going to ask you for a job. I'm going to send out some resumes. I'm going to go after this thing that I'm asking you for. I'm not just going to ask you for a spouse. I'm going to ask someone on a date. I'm going to do both of those things. I'm going to ask and I'm going to seek. And then you've got knock. And that's all the way where Ruth is. That parable, right before Jesus says in Luke 11 about asking, seeking, knocking, he tells this story and he says, there's a guy, it's me, and I'm in bed with all my kids. And you come knocking on my door at midnight. And you say somebody just showed up at your house and you don't have any food. And so you're coming to me to give you food. Let me tell you what I'm going to say if you come to my house at midnight asking for food. Because you didn't plan for your company. It's not my responsibility. But you're just knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. And so eventually, I'm going to give you the food just to make you be quiet and go away. That's what the story says. The person is rewarded, not necessarily for any reason other than my Bible says shameless audacity. Do you have that towards the Lord? Those of you who have little kids, you remember how they knock at the door? They don't do this and then wait for you to come. What do they do? They just keep knocking. They wait on you to answer the door. They just keep on. And that's what God is looking for from us. Not, we kind of look through the window and we wait. I wonder if he's home. This is what he wants from us. And you keep doing that until he gives you, until he responds in some way. He says yes or no. That's Ruth. That's bold action. For some of you, between now and Christmas, that's the deal. He's going to ask you, that, that's, what's, that's going to be your part. I don't know what that's going to look like practically, but that's going to be your part. So this is what I want you thinking about as we pray. Y'all can go ahead and close your eyes. This is what I want you thinking about. Where's lack? Where's famine in my life? Don't be melodramatic, just be honest. And don't say you're going to live with something. 
that God hasn't said you have to live with. Well, I just got to live with chronic pain. That's just my deal. Whatever, don't say that. You got the area. Now, in your mind, I want you thinking about open wide your mouth so that God can fill it. You're empty and he wants to fill you in that area. I want you to let go of the expectations of what that looks like. It's going to be this. But I want you to hold on to expectancy. He's going to do something. Do you risk disappointment 100%? You are risking disappointment right now. And you're also creating opportunity. So now you've got that thing. You're saying, I'm going to open wide my mouth, God, so that you can fill it. You're expectant. You're going to do something. And let's just put, God doesn't have to work on our timetables. But let's just say between now and Christmas, we're going to see some movement in that area. Something is going to change. We don't know what, but something is going to change in that area. And then it's, God, what does it look like for me to ask? That's easy. What does it look like for me to seek? Maybe not so sure. What does it look like for me to knock? I'm not even comfortable doing that. It seems disrespectful. It seems annoying. You've got to help me with that one. So God, my prayer for the men and the women in this room is between now and Christmas. I pray they'd all get a gift from you. Something in this area where there's famine and where there's lack. And I know that's relative, but we all have those. God, that you would fill between now and Christmas. You give us eyes to see where you're at work. And then we, God, would respond in faith. If it's bold action, knocking, if it's seeking, if it's patient waiting, God, I don't know. But we would respond to you in faith. And we would keep doing that between now and Christmas. Expectantly waiting. I think of the folks and shepherds and wise men and righteous men and women in Israel who are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting on you to send a Messiah to make things right. And then you did. So, God, as we begin to look in that direction, we want to trust you to do the same thing in our life, to send a Redeemer to make things right. Because that's what He does. God, I want to pray particularly for people who this causes heartache for them. All it does is dredge up unanswered prayers and frustration and disappointment. God, I pray that you would bring healing in those areas of their hearts. And God, I pray that you would give them courage to ask and to seek and to knock again, to open their mouths up again and to give you the chance to fill it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with ministry. We'll have ministry teams up here in the corners. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. But I would say specifically, if you've got some area of need in your life, please let us pray with you. There's nothing magic about coming forward, but for some of you, that's a, a huge deal to take some steps down the road. That's knocking for you.
uh, we would love to see you do that. So you guys can stand. We'll close with this worship song, and Bo will dismiss us in a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm.